Good morning. Thank you, Pastor Rick. It is uh, an honor to be with you guys this morning. And uh, I just lost something. This is not supposed to happen. All right. Here we go. All right. Uh, I'm going to blame three services. I'm just kidding. No, it's been good. It's been good to travel around and good to be with you guys this morning. Can I open up in prayer? I just like to pray before I speak. I just uh, don't take lightly what God's called us to do. And most importantly, it's what he has to say rather than what this guy's got to say. So, well, Jesus, we just, again, thank you for your presence. And um, again, I said this first service and I said again, thank you that this is your church and that these are your people and that you desire to communicate intimately with each one of us here. And I, and I pray, God, that you would open up our, our hearts and our minds to, to hear from you and to respond to you, to be challenged and transformed by you. So would you have your way, and would your name be glorified? In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most defining moments in my life came in 2003, I had taken a team from our church down to uh, the islands in Vanuatu in the South Pacific, specifically an island called Eromongo, known as the Martyrs Island, which was a very remote island um, where my parents had been serving. And to give you an idea, remote, it was no electricity, no medical, bamboo huts. It was pretty remote. And we'd gone down there to, to uh, help my parents. Like I said, it had been there for a few years. And while we were there, we became aware of the grave of a missionary. And so we decided to go and see this grave. And I wasn't prepared for what God wanted to do in that moment. What started off for me as kind of this cool thing to go and do changed to a moment in my life that I will never forget. We were literally hacking through the jungle led by some locals to find this grave. And I remember the moment we saw it. It was tucked back in the jungle, this unusual scene. It was a tombstone, which was kind of unusual there anyway, but this tombstone on the side of this hill, all grown up with vegetation all around it. No one was keeping it. No one was taking care of it. There wasn't even a trail to it. And on this tombstone was no name, obviously no flowers, no picture, no markings at all. Just this lonely, insignificant tombstone in the middle of the jungle. His name was James Gordon. James had come to the island from Nova Scotia in 1865. And the reason why he came, or the reason why he went, was because George and Ellen Gordon, the former missionaries who were there, had just been killed. He knew this because George was his brother, and Ellen was his sister-in-law. And so he, upon hearing this news, would leave Nova Scotia and go to the very people who killed his own family. And I knew this story as I went into it. And I'll never forget that as I walked up to this grave, we stood there, the whole team just stood in silence. No one really had anything to say. We couldn't say anything. And as I stood there, 
in silence looking at this grave, this story was replaying over and over and over again in my mind. See, James had gone to the island and he'd been there for seven years and he would pray for the daughter of a chief who was sick and she wouldn't get better and so he was killed. And so as I sat there looking or stood there looking and praying what, what felt like eternity, I was asking myself what would lead him to this place? What brought him from Nova Scotia to this place? It wasn't the promise of a salary package. It wasn't the desire for title or power or position. It wasn't for accolades or spotlight. Certainly wasn't for crowds of loving people or comfortable lifestyle. In fact, it had absolutely nothing to do with selfish ambition. No, rather what led him to this place was simply that he recognized the overwhelming need that still existed for these people to know Jesus. If someone was ever looking for a justifiable reason not to go somewhere, I think he had it. I've had many missionaries when I was a pastor, and if a missionary came up to me and said, hey, during a service, hey, God's calling me to go to this place, and they've just killed the last missionaries who were there, I would probably say something that would seem right at the time, like, are you sure? You might want to rethink that. Maybe God wouldn't do that. And the flip side, if I had missionaries that came up and said, hey, we were going to go, however... They just killed the former missionaries, and so we're going to hold off. I would probably say, that's a good call. Unfortunately, I don't think either one of those responses really would reflect the heart of God. James couldn't walk away. In fact, the reality is he died to himself long before he actually ever physically died. And he lived for Christ. So as I stood by that grave and all of this is taking place in my mind. I mean, the reality is I wish I could have conversations with God like this all the time. It's just not that way in my life. But in this moment it was. It was like Jesus was standing right next to me as I'm looking at this grave. And I'm, I'm looking at this grave and I'm, and I'm thinking about all of these things that I'm sharing with you. In my mind I'm saying, man, who would do this? And in that moment, Jesus said to me, I would, and I did. I have to believe heaven's a comfortable place, and Jesus would see us in our desperation, in our darkness, destined for hell, not with a glimpse or a hope in the world. And Jesus would see us in our desperation. He would leave the comforts of heaven. He would come to a people that would reject him. He would come to a people that would persecute him, and ultimately to a people that would hang him on a cross at least try to kill him. And he would come anyway because he knew that we did not stand a chance. And so as I'm looking at this grave and I'm looking at James and his life is rushing through my mind and, 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 and as his life is rushing through my mind, I'm seeing this reflection in James's life that looks a whole lot like Jesus' life. 
And the two looked the same. And then, unfortunately, in that moment, it was like Jesus took a mirror and he flipped it on myself. And not only did I come face to face with James and face to face with Jesus, but I came face to face with one other guy, this guy. And what bothered me is that my life didn't look like James's life. And in turn, my life didn't look like Jesus's life. And I had reverend in front of my name. See, when God called me into ministry, I did say yes. But I said yes to God to where I wanted to go. To what I wanted to do. I actually told God quite clearly where he could use me best. And I thought I made it clear of what I wouldn't do for him. I told him I was not going to be a pastor. I was not going to be a youth pastor. And if I knew serving the district was on the radar, I would have said that one too. But I would serve him in missions. And the reason why I said this was not in a rebellious nature. The reason why I said this was I thought, man, with my time in the military, this, <laughs> in my ignorance, like this is where God needed me, right? As if he really needed me. Thank you, Selwyn. Couldn't do this without you, right? Oh, you know, you're younger. But this is where God needed me. This is where, with my abilities and my skill set, like I belong in the mud and in the dirt and somewhere else. And I don't belong behind a podium in a church and something civilized. And so I really thought. And so I told God. And God led me to believe that he had heard me. Be careful of the deals you make with God. And in addition to that, I grew up as a pastor's kid. And I loved God. And, uh, and, but I had a front row seat to some challenges that happened. There are great things that happen in churches, and there's some challenging things that happen in churches. There are some, you know, mean people in other churches. I know you don't know about them, but in other churches, it's possible to have some mean people. And I had a front row seat to that, and I was like, I am all set with that. I love God, just didn't like some of his people, and I wanted to serve him, and I wanted to serve him on my terms. Um... And so standing next to that grave, I came face to face with what real servanthood looked like. And I felt like that's what Jesus said to me. In that moment, I said, it felt like he said, someone, this is what servanthood looks like. Not this is what a pastor's life looks like. Not this is what a missionary's life looks like. But rather, this is what a Christian life looks like. I tell people... And this stands true, the most profound and loudest sermon I have ever heard in my life came from a missionary who'd been for dead over a hundred years without him saying a single word simply by the way that he lived. I've preached this sermon many times, and every time I preach it, I feel like kind of guilty because I feel like this is his sermon. This is not mine. This is his he gave his life for people in the midst of nowhere, but the resounding gong from his life now exists in other places because of the way that he lived in the obedience. He may have thought that he died for nothing, but he may not have seen the fruit of his labor, but I've seen the fruit, and God's used his life in my life. 
Jesus said this in John chapter 12, verses 23 through 24. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, this is the game changer. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus was talking about wheat, but I want to use corn to illustrate what Jesus is saying. Uh, I know it's different, but he made all of it, so I don't think he'd have a problem with it. I think it speaks the same. I hold in my hand just a single kernel of corn. Does anyone know what this single kernel of corn can produce? This single kernel of corn can reproduce itself up to 16 Hundred times. Isn't God amazing? 1,600 times. Here's how. This seed is buried, produces one plant. One plant, on average, produces two ears of corn. Each ear of corn, on average, has 800 kernels on it. And so this has the potential to reproduce itself 1,600 times, but only from this state. But it didn't always used to look like this, did it? No. It used to look quite different. Bear with me as I get this out. It used to look like this. And there's laughter and joy and smiles of warm weather and butter. And other good things, and whether you want to put it on a grill or you want to put it in a pot, but you're thinking right now, I know just what to do with that. And I'm sure it involves sinking your teeth into it. And you could do that. And it would, for the record, this is cattle corn, so this wouldn't taste good. But if it was sweet corn, this would taste good. But how do you get from this to this? This is unproductive. It looks good. To the world, to you, it looks good. But this is productive. So how do you move from this protected state to a productive state? Well, all of the 800 kernels of corn are surrounded by these green things that are called husks. And what do husks do? They protect, right? Right? They protect. They protect against insects, they protect against disease, they protect against all kinds of things, but they keep it nice and moist and juicy in here and ready to eat. But in order for this to go from this protected state to a productive state, something has to happen. And so I'm going to share with you what God's process is. This process involves this ear of corn being exposed to the sun, and as the sun shines on this ear of corn, these protective coverings begin to dry up. And as they begin to dry, they slowly begin to peel, just one at a time. And obviously the process is longer than what I'm doing. In life, we don't get to skip this process. But, but over time, they begin to dry up, and they begin to reveal inside. That wasn't so protected, that one. It's kind of gross up top. Sorry. Uh, but as they begin to dry up, they begin to expose 
the corn inside. And if it was sweet corn, I could push on this corn and juice would come out. And so over time, as these layers of protection dry, it ceases to look more like this and begins to look more like this. Now, there's probably not a person in here that's thinking, I'd like to sink my teeth into that, (laughs) right? To us, this looks good. This is what we want. This is healthy. This is life. This is has been. This is dead. This belongs on your porch in fall as a decoration. And so in the world's economy, this is what you want. This is what you don't want. In God's economy, it's completely different. In God's economy, this looks like stagnancy, and this looks like the beginning of life. But if it dies, Jesus continues in in the same chapter of John, John chapter 12, verses 25 to 26, and he says, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. How did Jesus go from giving an agricultural lesson about wheat to the man who loves me, or sorry, the man who loves his life will lose it, and whoever serves me must follow me. Because we know he wasn't talking about an agricultural lesson. Jesus was talking about his life and what he was doing. In addition, he wasn't just talking about his life, he was talking about yours. And he was talking about mine. And he was saying, as you're seeing me walk this out and live this out, this is how you are to live in the same manner, the same understanding, the same purpose. In fact, in that moment, Jesus was actually before the Great Commission giving his strategy for building his kingdom across the globe. He was saying in that moment that my strategy for building this, which, and what I love about this is every time you see any bit of fruit, you can see God's strategy. You see an ear of corn, you will see God's strategy. You see wheat, you will see God's strategy. It's in every every seed-bearing thing that we eat. You will be reminded of what God's strategy is. His strategy is if it dies, the only way this can produce is if it dies. So in everything that we do, we're reminded this is his strategy, and you are that seed. He went on in Matthew 16, 24 to 25, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Let me pause for a second and say what he's saying in Matthew in corn terminology is Anyone who strives to live their life looking like this will lose their life. In the world, this looks like what you want. In the world, you turn on the TV, you don't have enough husks in your life. 
You never have enough insurance. You never have enough life insurance. You never have enough retirement. You never have enough coverage. You never have enough things. And the world is constantly bombarding you with more protection, more safety. And because if the world can keep your focus on you, then it can keep you distracted from anything else. And so the world says, add another husk, add another layer of protection. That's what you want. Sure, serve God when you can, but make sure this is what takes place first. And so Jesus is saying, the one who tries to save his life, the one who attempts to live his life looking like this, will lose it. Well, the one who looks dead to the world, looking like this, will save it. Can I share to you what the key to reaching New England is? The key to reaching New England, and honestly, the key to reaching the world is not the best worship services. It's not the best preaching. It's not the best programs in church. Honestly, it's not your best skill set. It's not your education. It's not your talent. It's not your gifting. Those aren't bad things. They're just not it. Rather, what will forcefully advance the kingdom of God faster than anything else is simply this. Christians beginning to die to themselves and live for Jesus. Christians simply beginning to die to themselves, embrace God's word and Jesus' mandate to go and make disciples and God will take care of the rest. I think your education, I think your skill sets, I think your abilities and all those things are wonderful things. I'm all for that. They're just not it. It is simply the obedience of God's people empowered by his spirit that's going to do it. Understand this, that sometimes our abilities and skill sets can just be, can be as preventative in us going out as our weaknesses. Let me explain that sometimes. Let me back up and say this. In my experience, God has always led me to things in ministry that were beyond me. I look back now, and especially when you hear people say your bio, you're like, ah, because I'm going, how on earth did that happen? I constantly see myself as going, man, I don't think I'm qualified. I don't think I'm ready enough for this position. I don't think I'm equipped enough for this position. I, I, I wish I had more of this. Then I could be more effective. And, I, and in the end, the conclusion has come to this. I think God loves his people too much to allow me to minister where I'm strong. And what I mean by that is if God allows me to minister where I'm comfortable, I will move in my strengths. In essence, I will say this. Thank you, Lord. I've got this. You're welcome. Here you go. And I may be able to do some good things in my strengths. I just won't ever walk where God wants me to walk. And so in my experience, and I would dare to say that this may be true of you, that God will lead you to challenging and difficult places. He will lead you to impassable cliffs and mountains you can't climb, and praise God for that. Although in the process it's painful, in the process you don't want, in the process you're praying that it will go away. But then on the other side of that cliff, when he shows up in ways you can't, you'll be so grateful. My first year of pastoring, 
I shouldn't share this, but <laughs> I didn't want to pastor. God called me. I knew he had me there. I didn't know why. I thought it was a bad decision on his part. And probably like every Saturday, I'm in the fetal position, and I'm crying out to God saying, God, I can't do this. And really what I wanted God to say is come in and say, yes, you can. I've built you for this. I've equipped you for this, and you've got this. And, and that's not at all what I felt like he did. I kind of felt like he shoved me with his foot and said, you're pathetic. <laughs> and he would have been right, and he was right. And I felt like he said to me, you're right. You can't do this. And that's why you're here. I don't need people who can. I need people who can't. Now grab my hand and watch my power in the midst of your weakness. I think this sounds scriptural. But watch my power in the midst of your weakness and watch what I can do. Because I love my people more to let them minister or be ministered to you in your strength. I want them to see you walk in my strength. I don't like uncomfortable places. I'm a control freak. If God gave me the final destination, I would plan a path that avoided every obstacle. So would you, right? Why? Because why wouldn't you? Every, there would be no obstacles. There would be bridges over flooding rivers, and I would praise God for it, except it's just not how he does things. And so God does lead us to those impossible tasks because he wants to show his power and authority. Because when you start moving, not in your strength and not in your ability, but when you start moving is if you serve a God who has all authority and all power, it's a game changer. What are the husks in your life? I wish I could preach this message looking like this and saying, hey guys, this is where I am and all you people who look like this, let me tell you how to get there. It just wouldn't be true. I think my life probably looks a little bit more like this. There's some areas I've got it right, and there are other areas I don't. And I think every day there are husks that want to creep back in, and it's a constant wrestling and tension. And there are constantly husks because you can bother with what the expectation of the world says your life needs to look like. And some of these things aren't bad things. Let me be clear. There are things in life that, that we need to take care of. But if we bow down to those things and those things keep us from moving in obedience to God, then they become idols in our lives. And they hold us back from walking where God wants us to walk. Some of the husks, just to share a little personally, for Lori and I, when we, we eventually moved to the island that we had taken a team down to. And, and we have a son. He's now 24. He has autism. And uh, we had... Uh, We'd gone, uh, in, in the process of moving down there, he was only eating cheeseburgers, ranch Doritos, and spaghetti. Don't judge us on our parenting. <laughs> if you understand autism. But as we went forward, we're like, man, there's, there's no electricity. There's nothing. There's no stores. Like, what are we going to do? And, and it was a real worry for us. And, and, and how is this going to happen? I want to tell you that when we got there, Michael ate everything we put before him. And we basically were living in tents and pioneered a farm. He ate every vegetable we put before him and never complained one time. It wasn't until we got back into L.A. and we're walking down the international section and he saw this McDonald's sign and all of a sudden it felt like God took the blinders off and he, <laughs> and he said, McDonald's! And he went running. It was not a good combination. He had the worst gas on the next flight for there on. So, <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't say that, but that was true. We pay dearly. But, and I wish I could tell you this, 
I wish I could say that every faith and every challenge is filled with experiences like that. It's not. There will be times in your life where you'll be like, God, this is not how you should do things. <laughs> God, you should show up differently. But I will say that in everything, God is faithful. What are the husks in your life? What I know is this, that God has a purpose that you are still God's strategy. You are still God's strategy for reaching the world. And the plans that he has for you far exceed your skill sets and your abilities. He wants to lead you in places and to places that you never dreamed you would be. But if you and I are going to walk where God has for us to walk, we will never get there looking like this. And so there are husks that exist in our lives. They look like safety. They look like finances. They look like past abuses and sins in our own lives. They look like our confidences. They look like all kinds of things. I don't pretend to know what they are for you personally, but I do know that we all have them. But if we will begin to ask God to reveal those husks to him and allow him to pull them back because you don't have the power to de-husk your own cob, so to speak. You don't have the power to remove your own, but he does. And sometimes the most powerful thing we do is say, Lord Jesus, like, here's what I'm struggling with. This is the husk that I know. And I know that there are many that I don't know, but here's the one that I know, and it's been part of my life for so long. It's defined who I am. And all I know is I don't want to be defined by this anymore, and I don't want to bow down to this anymore. And so would you, would you move in a way that I can't? And would you begin to peel this back, as painful as it might be, and teach me to trust you, that I may walk where you have for me, and I may walk in the path that you have for me. And more than that, that people may come to know you because I'm moving in obedience to you. I know this, that the enemy does not want you to get this message. If there's any message he's definitely afraid of you getting, it's this one. Because what happens if just one of you get this? What if this whole principle that we see in every piece of fruit that we eat, what if it's actually true? What happens if just one of you get this? What happens if two get this? What happens if the church gets this? Can I say this? One Christian life looking like this is more effective than 800 showing up faithfully to church every Sunday looking like this. Despite the murder of his own family, James would recognize the overwhelming need that still existed for these people to know Jesus and he would go. Today, the overwhelming need still exists. There are 867 unreached people groups in Africa. There are 1,123 groups in Asia Pacific. There are 5,356 in Eurasia, 1,161 in Europe, 642 in South America, and 469 in Northern Asia. And you are still the plan. You are still the strategy. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching these new disciples to obey all the commands that 
I have given you, and be sure of this, and this is the most important part, I am with you always. You are not alone. You're not alone in your weakness. You're not alone in your going, but go. If the musicians would come back, I want to close the service down. What is he saying to you? Because that's what we want more than anything, is we want Jesus to have this personal interaction and conversation with you wherever you are. What is he saying to you? Some he may be calling to give more. Some he may be saying, hey, I want to mobilize you more in where you live. Some of you may have had a dream on your heart, on your mind for many years that you're waiting for everything to line up perfectly. And maybe you're pulling a cell one. Maybe you're saying, God, when all this is handled, I will serve you, but I want to serve you looking like this. What is God saying to you? I'm going to turn this service back over to part Pastor Marvin in, in two seconds. I just want to close with this one quote and then briefly pray. William Carey, the father of modern day missions, said this I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Well, Jesus, we just come before you. God, words cannot begin to express how grateful we are that you would come. And you would endure all that you endured to a cross that we might have life. God, we thank you, Lord, that you would choose to give us a role in your story, a, a path, a place. God, I thank you that you know each person in this place. God, you know them by name and that you have created them for this moment, for this time and that you have a plan for their life that exceeds what they can imagine. God, you also know every husk that exists in their life. And only you have the power to gently begin to remove those and expose them, Lord God. And so would you speak to your people, Lord God? Would you begin to identify those things in their lives, Lord God, that they may walk in the paths and the places that you've called them divinely to walk, Lord God? And that your life and only your life and your name would be glorified through theirs. In Jesus' name, amen.